miss the show no worries we've got you covered on point and on our podcast a massive and surprise billion dollar investment into oshawa as gm does uh well it comes back to life and new no one knew a toronto cop gets nine months for jail in this brutal assault that left a black teen without eyesight but of course this is just the beginning of his problems and we'll talk with um a colleague out of Dallas who breaks down what's happening in the United States over all of these election race uh, counting ballots uh, and all the electoral fraud that could be going on and why he says Donald Trump will not go quietly into the dark. And Doug Ford goes on a massive, massive spending spree. Let's get talking. Our deficit is projected to be $38.5 billion, unchanged from what I reported in the first quarter finances this summer. We are projecting that the deficit will decrease to $33.1 billion next year and $28.2 billion the following year. Try to stomach those numbers. Oh, yes. The Ford government throwing out the austerity playbook. And boy, did he go on a massive spend-a-thon. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, November 5th. It is budget day in Ontario. And this is one of those uh, really big news days where we're kind of just lots coming at us. And uh, right now, as I look around my shoulder, we're just waiting for President Trump to speak. This is the first time that he will have uh, spoken since he declared himself the winner in those wee early morning hours of the election morning. So we're just waiting for him to come on and then we'll bring you his comments. But we're also going to take you through the dollars and cents of a provincial budget that, you know, if you if you closed your eyes and you didn't know better, you would actually think that this was a Win McGinty government um, and they were drunk spending because it's it's big. It is a big once in a lifetime pandemic bu- uh, budget. There's 187 billion in big spending, massive deficits, years away from being paid off. And, you know, since we're still putting the fingers in the dike, uh, spending's not going to slow down anytime soon. So we've got billions poured into health, billions into direct pandemic response. There's money for seniors, business supports, and uh, even a few shuckles for the parents to buy some gifts at Christmas. And uh, this is the exact opposite of what the Ford government uh, ran on because they were elected on reining in the spending and balancing the books. And today, Rod Phillips said, yeah, we're doing the opposite. Nobody knows for certain what direction the pandemic will take or what direction the economy will take. We need to be prepared for anything, which is why I will continue to provide regular public updates to the province on our finances each quarter. So that's uh, Rod Phillips, and unquestionably, he is uh, probably had to have a few strong drinks when he wrote up this budget because he's a Bay Street guy. Um, You know, his job was to come in and fix things. But there is new polling out, and a massive majority of Ontarians are, are okay with this kind of spending. And according to the, the numbers, I mean, and we're not talking small, 82% say the Ford government should spend, and that includes conservatives, say the government should spend what is needed to protect people, and we can clean up the mess later. And it will be quite a mess. I am pleased to announce a $1.3 billion announcement that will reopen the Oshawa assembly plant. We'll put into place a brand new body shop. We'll put into place a new assembly line. We'll fix up the paint shop. We will be a complete assembly operations once again. 
Credit given where credit's due. And while most folks, including myself, said that GM in Oshawa was dead in the water, Jerry Dias uh, basically said, stick it in your ear. I mean, and the guy was like a dog on a bone. He didn't give up. And then uh, we wake up to this news today that the auto giant is sinking up to $1.3 billion into building a new plant where they're going to build light and mid-range trucks, creating over 2,000 jobs. And then, of course, you get all the spinoff production for auto part manufacturers. And uh, I was thrilled as I looked through all the fine print to realize, hey, the taxpayers don't even have to pay for this. So the question I has, I was left with is like, why now? Why did? Why would they do this now when they just shuttered the thing back in 2018, killing all those jobs? Flavio uh, Volpe, Volpe joins me now. He's president of the Automotive Part, uh, Parts Manufacturers Association. Good to have you with us, Flavio. Thanks for having me on again, Alex. So forgive my surprise, surprise, but uh, we're back in business. How did this come about? Well, I think you gave credit to, to one of the people that deserves a lot of it. It's uh, Jerry Dias. Uh, you're right. He's a dog on a bone, and um, and uh, it, the closure caught him by surprise. And in fairness, probably caught a lot of people at GM Canada by surprise. So the other people I'd give credit to are the those unnamed uh, folks who Canadians who work at General Motors who've been fighting inside uh, the Canadian headquarters in Oshawa with Detroit to say, hey, you know what? We still have a world class uh, plant and supply chain and workforce here, and um, you know, uh, the union can't force the company to spend a billion dollars when it doesn't want to. It could certainly set the conditions, and Jerry did. Uh, but um, but the folks at GM Canada deserve a heck of a lot of credit here. And I'll add one yeah. more. Yeah, uh, you ask, you know, why now? Um, well, what happened in the interim is we signed the new NAFTA. And the new NAFTA has a new set of rules, and it says 75% of a vehicle instead of 65, 62.5% has to be sourced locally. And in that 75, they said uh, engines, transmissions, batteries, motors has to be uh, sourced locally if, uh, if a company wants to sell a car tariff-free across North America, really to the American consumer. So a lot of these companies, like you saw with Ford and, and Fiat Chrysler last week, they're making real decisions on where they're going to put their vehicles of the future. In those two cases, they said... We think the battery supply chain is here and the electric motor supply chain is here. And so they invested here. General Motors said, we're going to launch the new Hummer, uh, electric Hummer, and we're going to do batteries. They did the Hummer in Detroit, Hamtramck is the plant, and then the batteries in Lordstown, Ohio. But it's not replacing a vehicle. It's just displacing a vehicle. And their number one selling cars are their full-size pickups. And so they said, wow, we have this plant in Oshawa that's idled. And with a workforce that has been winning awards, J.D. Power Awards, for the last 40 years. Um, why don't we go there? And here we are. Here we are. And so the idea is to start hiring in 2021. Vehicles roll off the line starting January 2022. So there's a lot of opportunity here um, for right. hiring. And so what happens? Do they bring in all the the people that were let go last time? I mean, I'm looking at this and thinking, well, what's in this for GM? Because they were the ones who told you know, us that there was nothing, you know, worth investing here. And so what, what would be the change of mind for them? I mean, it's not like they want to make cars with expensive labor costs and those kinds of things. I mean, where did they all of a sudden see Ontario? Because this is a second auto um, announcement I've talked to you about in the last yeah. what, six weeks. What's changing right. in Ontario that all of a sudden these guys want to come back? Well, the new, the new rules for USMCA, as well as where the market is going, um, the rules, uh, 
you know, the, the President Trump uh, thought that the new USMCA was really good for uh, U.S. auto, and he's right. But it was really good for U.S. auto in the north, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana. Uh, I've been saying for a couple of years it's really good for Canada, and it comes at the expense of the U.S. south and Mexico. So in the past, you know, two years ago, three years ago, if they had gotten into this electric truck business, um, first of all, nobody would have been buying them. Um, and now with California saying you can't sell a regular vehicle in uh, California in 2035, that market's going to shift. And then two, three years ago, it would have gone to Mexico and it came here now. Okay, so and, let me just uh, clarify. Are these electric trucks or are these gas guzzling, no. uh, you know, natural resource trucks? Well, they, so General Motors announced electric trucks and they're going to do them in Detroit and in, in Indiana. And mm-hmm. that's displaced what I think. You know, the company hasn't told me the exact product, but the only thing that makes sense is where are they going to make the trucks that uh, everybody's buying now? And so they're going to make them up here. You know, they were finishing them up here. What, what your listeners might or might not know is that all those trucks were coming up from Fort Wayne, Indiana for the last four years to be finished and painted in Oshawa. You know, that company has an established logistics supply chain to finish them up here and get them to customers. And mm-hmm. uh, what's important, you, you know, you, you started with, hey, there's no government money here. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think that underpins how important this product is to General Motors and how much they already sell. It's their highest margin product in the highest demand, and uh, they entrusted it to their best workforce. And uh, that's how you pay for the extra labor cost. Um, you, you, you bring in the high margin vehicles, and that's what they've done here. Okay. And so were, were the provincial and federal government at all part of these discussions? I mean, are they getting any subsidies on things? Like I know that uh, the budget just announced actually subsidies on hydro costs and things. Would that have been something that, that the company looks at and says, okay, well, look, if you can cut the hydro costs, subsidize some of that stuff, we can we can talk. I mean, did, did, did either federal or provincial partners come in and help ease regulations? Well, these companies are always talking, uh, just like uh, we are, uh, you know, on a regular basis to both levels of government. And I think the company probably told the, the both levels of government that, look, we can do this one. And it's not unprecedented. A lot of times they do it. You know, Fiat Chrysler uh, did it mm-hmm. uh, for their Windsor investment um, uh, six years ago when Sergio Marchione, who was CEO at the time, said he didn't want to be a political football, so he didn't want subsidy. What, it, what they're really saying here, Alex, is that on the product they're moving here is so in demand. Uh, and it, it fits within their corporate plan uh, to move them into a plant that they've idled that um, that uh, they're going to make that decision based on market forces. And, and I'm happy to see that. It's okay to it's okay to to go for public money on some of these. You know, sometimes you really need to compete for the for the riskier product like battery electric vehicles when only two percent of the market are buying them. But on pickup mm-hmm. trucks, nobody needs help. Yeah, I mean, they are still very, very popular. Um, but, but how do you guarantee then, um, Flavio, that this is sticking around for a while and that in five, six years, GM's not going to all of a sudden pull up stakes again? Well, typically when you make a retooling investment and uh, when you do a, uh, a hiring up uh, like they're doing, um, it is a generational investment. It's uh, it's you know a 10 to 20 year investment that way. You don't have to you don't have to get a government guarantee if they launch a product. So so you just think about the trucks you see on the road when you see a new Silverado. The new Silverado usually yeah. goes for seven or eight years. So, you know, at the very least, they're tooling for that seven or eight years. You never move production within a program. And um, and that workforce, you know, was very unfortunate. And I was very vocal about it in, uh, in, in 2018. But that workforce has been making cars uh, for General Motors for 112 years. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty safe bet. And and this is also going to have big spinoff uh, for the um, the parts manufacturers. I mean, Woodstock and St. Catharines also mentioned in this deal. So, the, you know, this is yeah. one of those days where, where Ontario, I mean, 
it's a pretty good news day. It probably means ten to 15,000 jobs in parts manufacture in this province. It probably means another mm, at least as many in the logistics and the services that serve a plant like this. A plant like that buys about 3 to $4 billion worth of parts every year in Ontario. That feeds mm-hmm. a lot of families. It sure does. And so what does this mean then for auto? Is Ontario now becoming a place for auto? I mean, is this how we're going to, you know, I don't know if we'll ever go back to the glory days, but I mean, signaling forward, what do you think it looks like? i tell you what, we've had a hell of a month. Uh, in the last uh, month, we've had announcements from Ford, FCA and uh, General Motors. That is $4.8 billion in new investment. Uh, importantly for us, we think that probably means 6 to $7 billion worth of uh, new parts purchases every year. I think um, that uh, there is a, a real path uh, to the glory days. We're not that far off, Alex, from the glory days in terms of volume. We're probably off by about 30%. Mm-hmm. And um, three of the world's biggest automakers committing their flagship products here. In addition to what Toyota did last year, they committed their number one selling Lexus CUV uh, to uh, their plant in Woodstock. Um you know, Ontario, under the new USMCA rules, uh, with our, tech, our our high-tech sector here, uh, could overtake all those years that all of mm-hmm. us uh, with uh, gray hair, uh, grayer mm-hmm. hair uh, remember fondly. In the middle of a recession, in the middle of a pandemic, it is uh, the kind of news I like to tell. So thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations. I appreciate your uh, time and, uh, and, and hard work. Always a pleasure. We're celebrating tonight. Good stuff. Flavia Volpe uh, joining us with the news, and uh, they should be celebrating in Oshawa, but it is great news for this province at a time when we just darn well need it. The net result of nine months imprisonment for Mike Terrio is not going to give Defonte Miller his eye back. The public should be asking police leadership for accountability, not empty public relations exercises of, uh, uh, in the form of apologies. That is Julian Falkner, the lawyer for DeFonte Miller speaking. And uh, we learned today that the Toronto cop convicted in the beating of Miller has now been handed a nine-month jail sentence with one-year pro- uh, probation. And uh, Justice DeLucha said that, quote, nothing short of a jail sentence would provide de- uh, denunciation required in this case. And then he added, serious offenses warrant serious punishment even when they are committed by otherwise law-abiding people. And of course, he uh, is talking about Michael Terrio. And the Crown asked for 12 to 15 months. His lawyers asked for a suspended sentence. And uh, given the gravity of the crime, which left Miller without an eye, the judge fell into the mid-range. Daniel Brown is a criminal defense lawyer with Daniel Brown Law. He joins us now. Uh, Daniel, I would say that um, he kind of struck the right balance. Where do you see this? I, th- I think you're right. I-, I think it was very unlikely that he was going to sentence Michael Terrio to anything other than real jail time. His lawyer asked for uh, a suspended sentence, meaning no jail time, and even asked uh, that he not get a criminal record from this. And that would just be wholly inappropriate right. given the-, the gravity of this offense and-, and the conduct of this officer. So I think right. all in all, I mean, he had to give him some sort of jail sentence. He wasn't likely going to send a first-time offender uh, to jail for 12 or 15 months. But I, I think nine months is, is certainly a significant jail sentence for a police officer in these circumstances. And he wasn't convicted of the more serious crime of aggravated assault. In the end, it was a conviction on assault. So the judge really only has so far he can go with it. And, you know, looking at other precedents in other cases, um, you know, you can't he can't be seen going further than, let's say, um, he would normally because of, of what's going on in the world around us. 
And I think more importantly, the judge can't sentence him for for a crime that he didn't commit. So uh, this charge started off as an aggravated assault. And the uh, Crown was trying to prove that that eye injury that left uh, Devante Miller uh, without his eye uh, was um, was trying to prove that aggravated offense. And, and the evidence just didn't bear out in relation to that. What the evidence did show was that the officer used excessive force uh, during this altercation and, and that at some point, uh, he inflicted some sort of harm on DeFonte Miller, but couldn't say it was that eye injury uh, that was caused uh, by the officer in this unlawful assault. And in convicting him, I mean, the judge said, you know, he described the assault as a one-sided violent beatdown. I mean, DeFonte Miller will never see out of his eye, out of his face. And uh, no question, he'll live with that for the rest of his life. He'll live with the pain and the suffering of that for the rest of his life. And so, you know, and, and this is one of those cases that when they were doing the, um, you know, the the trial was right in the middle of, of when we were seeing a lot of violence, really uh, high racial challenges, um, you know, in the United States. And and no question, the judge would have been under a whole lot of pressure to get this right well i think i think he was and i think both sides say he got it wrong the crown attorney right now is appealing the verdict saying that the judge should have found him guilty of the more serious offense and should have also found christian terrio guilty of an aggravated Mm -hmm. assault as well uh his lawyer uh michael terrio's lawyer says the judge got it wrong and that he didn't uh or that he found that he was guilty of an offense that he didn't commit and so it'll be for the appeal courts to sort this out in the future Right. And it is under appeal. Uh, But this doesn't mean the end of trouble for for Michael Terrio. I mean, the jail sentence is one thing, but, you know, he's now going to be uh, suspended without pay. Um, You know, the the paycheck stops from the cops. He will, I can't imagine, not lose his job. I mean, he'll lose his job. But the other thing is he will be looking at civil action of some sort, I would imagine. We can expect all of those things. I think a civil lawsuit is is going to be uh, coming down the pipes. Uh, The findings of the judge are really significant because the judge found that probably the officer caused that eye injury. Probably the the officer, uh, Michael Terrio, wasn't acting in self-defense at the time. Uh, It didn't meet the criminal standard, but certainly those types of findings would ground a civil lawsuit where there's a lower legal standard of of, Mm -hmm. you have to show that something probably happened. If you can show that, you can meet that civil standard. And we know definitely that once a a police officer receives a jail sentence, they're not going to be a police officer for much longer. And it's only a, a matter of time either before he resigns or he's uh, fired and, and dismissed without uh, with cause. And I would have to think that, you know, um, it's often the civil courts where I think most people find they can get the justice because, like you said, the bar is set a little bit lower, but often getting hit in the pocketbook for a lot of people is, is far more damaging because, uh, you know, it's a bigger consequence when you can't, you know, when you've got to fork out money. And so that's what, where they'll get the, the justice. But there there is still a lot more to this case. I mean, yeah, the Toronto police apologized for it, but there are so many parts of this case um, and, and how the police behaved and the allegations about other people being involved and possibly cover-ups in that. I mean, it's this thing doesn't just go away. Right. This is a real black guy in the justice system. And I think it's also a black guy in the police uh, that investigated this. It's a black guy in the Toronto police who uh, tried to cover this up. Nobody alerted the special investigations unit that these police mm-hmm. office or that this police officer was involved in this assault. What we know was that at the end of that altercation with with the officer, uh, Officer Terrio, it was DeFonte Miller who was charged with a crime, not the officer. And uh, also that the Durham police that were investigating this seemed to tr- give preferential treatment to the police officer and his brother because of their connections uh, to the police. And, and 
And so there, there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered here. Perhaps there's going to be an inquiry into the conduct mm-hmm. of these officers and, and, and these police forces. But we need to do more to ensure that these types of problems aren't simply swept under the rug by police in the future. Yeah, I mean, I don't suspect Julian Faulkner will allow that to happen. I mean, he does take on these big, big cases and oftentimes uh, gets the results. I mean, um, and and so would all of those bodies that you just named, be it the SIU, Durham Police, all of them, would they all be then culpable for civil action? Well, not certainly not the SIU. The SIU didn't know about this because nobody told them. But I, I think uh, that these other organizations, whether it be the Toronto Police or the Durham Police, have a lot of questions to answer. Whether or not they're culpable or liable is going to be a, a question for a court to determine in the future. But certainly they're going to have a lot of questions to answer about why they didn't engage the SIU much sooner. Mm-hmm. Well, they have to. I mean, an apology is great, but, uh, you know, you can't lose uh, trust and, and faith in the system um, because if you're seen not to be doing justice, uh, then you're not doing justice. And so, the, you know, I, I don't think we've heard the end of this uh, story. Daniel, I appreciate your time. I know you're very busy, but uh, I do appreciate your insight into this. Thanks, Alex. That is Daniel Brown, criminal defense lawyer with Daniel Brown Law. So, yes, this is just the beginning of this story. And uh, we'll see where Julian Faulkner takes this because uh, he's not going to let up. The Biden crime family stealing the election. The media is covering up. The Biden crime family stealing this election. The media is covering up. The Biden crime family stealing this election. The media is covering up. We want our freedom for the world. Give us our freedom, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is covering up this election. He's stealing it. Where were we? What was the last question? You think that guy's the only one who feels that way? Absolutely not by a long shot. There are a lot of people in the United States that are concerned there may be games at play with a vote count that's underway now in several razor-thin races across vital swing states. And, I mean, what do you expect, given the colossal screw-up of the pollsters, the pundits, and all the pointy-headed smart people? I mean, they were adamant we would get the Biden blue wave, and there was no wave. It was a puddle. And so the president's being decided by thousands of votes in these races, in some cases hundreds. And given the patchwork approach the U.S. has when it comes to vote counting, it's nothing like Canada. They've got states that have their own rules, different ways of making things happen. So yeah, sure, mistakes can happen. And yes, believe it or not, while people don't think it is happening, games can be played. So that's why you've got so much distrust. Steve Dace is a daily host of Blaze TV. He's in Dallas. He joins us now. Good to have you, Steve. Thank you very much. How are you doing, Alex? Well, we're watching from afar what's going on in the United States. I mean, no one thought that this was going to be as close it is as it is. And there's a, a lot of back and forth going on. I don't know when this thing is going to be settled. But even if it is settled, I think, am I right to say there's going to be a whole lot of distrust about the final decision? Yeah, this will be considered an illegitimate election, no matter who wins. Uh, I mean, Democrats already have set the precedent uh, four years ago, that if, if they don't win an election, it's illegitimate. Uh, they did that with the president, and they did it in 2018 with the governor's race in Georgia, where a woman lost the race by 50,000 votes and has been feted around the country as the rightful governor of Georgia. And now you'll see the Republicans join the parade as well, given the various shenanigans that uh, we have seen play out across the country in numerous states. We're now apparently in America. Uh, We have election Wednesday, election Thursday, election Friday, and so on and so forth. 
Well, I mean, it, from afar, I mean, we have one system. I mean, the vote comes in and then it's counted that night and, and it's it's federal. I mean, it goes right across the country. Wouldn't America get rid of a lot of these problems if they just came up with a federal plan that the vote comes in, it's counted that night, um, and you don't get these different rules in different states? Boy, I don't know uh, anybody's willing to, co- to to trust the federal government uh, in the United <laughs> States of America. Um uh, I think, and, and, and I don't know that many in the federal government want that responsibility because it would singularly fall on them if there was a disaster like what's unfolding right now. And politicians of, of every stripe typically like to uh, avoid uh, accountability and so spread the blame. And then you have deep, deep cultural divisions in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is what's kind of different from the country that you live in and a lot of other mm-hmm. Western countries is that. Those countries secularized and then politically moved to the left. We're not nearly as secular as Canada is. We're nowhere near as secular as Western Europe is. Um, you know, we still have, you know, white evangelicals are still about 25% of a national electorate in America. They're mm-hmm. barely 2% of the population in Western Europe. And so in your, in your country, your conservative party, they would be Democrats here in America. Yeah. And, and so Democrats from a long time ago, not today's Democrats. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah correct. They would be Democrats in the 70s or 80s. Correct. Yeah. Um, so we have deep, deep cultural divisions. And that also is why no side wants to trust the other with the handling of the vote. OK. And, and so, I mean, there are people here who have a very hard time believing that electoral fraud is an actual thing, but it is an actual thing and it has happened. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson was famous for having box 13. That was the box where ballots that he needed. Uh, there's only been one time in the two in the history of the two party system in America, which goes back to 1880 post reconstruction. The only time someone has won Ohio and Florida, as Trump did, and then lost the election was in 1960 with Richard Nixon. And that was a, a legendary case of voter fraud in Cook County, Illinois. And and there are myths and legends about Jack Kennedy's dad involved with the mob there. That's never been proven. But that was a hotly disputed election. Um, so there has been plenty of acts of voter fraud throughout the course of American history. Um, this this isn't voter fraud, though. What, what, what you have here, and, and it, it might have been considered voter fraud in another generation, but one side gets to make all the rules and then, and then runs the umpires as well. So you, you, you don't commit voter fraud, Alex, when you get to mm-hmm. define what voter fraud is, if you know what I'm trying to say. This is, right. this is a system that is systemically aligned against one guy winning. That's what this is. So if, if this is an illegitimate um, uh, election, um, and, you know, we'll find out in the next couple of days. I mean, Mr. Biden came out today and is pretty sure he's got this thing. But what does your country look like? Because 70 million people voted for President Trump. And so this notion that, you know, his policies and his politics are, were going to be utterly rejected in this election. I mean, 70 million people awfully angry. How do you see things, you know, coming, you know, falling out in the next few days? Um, I don't know. I think Donald Trump is not any kind of typical Republican. I think a typical Republican would be, hey, how hard can I fight this? And then do I damage my political brand? At some point, do I have to just give up the ghost? Uh, What if the media narrative turns against me? Uh, Trump doesn't care about any of that stuff. He's more shameless than they are. He doesn't care. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's far more he's far more at home with 
Warren Zevon's lawyers, guns and money. That's his world. I mean, gaslighting, chicanery, legal um, bullying, that's his world. And so he's far more comfortable playing in this sandbox than on the nuances of American policy. So I don't foresee any scenario where he gives this up without a win until about five minutes before Inauguration Day, uh, about two and a half months from now. He's, there's, there's never going to be a point where some Republican Party elder goes on one of these networks on a Sunday morning show and says, tisk tisk. We have to unify. The president gave us his best shot, but he needs to honor the results. That may happen. Donald Trump gives zero Fs about that. He did that. She doesn't care, just doesn't care. He loves this kind of game. And so he's going to fight this thing out to the very last uh, judicial uh, judicial order and restraining order. I, I will give this, though. He's been very quiet. He, he does tweet, but he's been really quiet. He hasn't come out. He has not spoken to the press. And, you know. Um, is different. The reason he does that in the policy debates is because he's not involved in those. He doesn't care about that stuff. He outsources that stuff and, and says to his team, you come back to me with the bill you want and I'll sign it. The reason he's quiet right now is because he's actually the one in charge. This is his world. He's calling the shots now. He's, he's, he's the general patent of this operation now. So he's not sitting around watching cable news all day and then tweeting his reactions to it like he does a lot of days in the White House. He is getting his hands dirty right now. So this is this is he's in his element right now. Yeah. And and, and I keep saying, you know, he, he's not a moment. He's a movement. So this thing doesn't end just because Donald Trump is not necessarily the president of the United States. That's correct. First of all, he will not go quietly. He'll salt the earth on the way out. Secondly, he, he has a massive support. I mean, he'll, he'll he'll tour the country. He'll continue to hold rallies. I, I believe you'll see him start a network to rival Fox News. I think he was going to always do that if he lost, but now it's personal. Yeah. Um, and, and so he's going to be injecting himself in American politics constantly. The Republican Party that wants to run away from him, he's going to be constantly rallying that base, constantly reminding them, hey, they stole it from us and the Republican Party didn't defend us. So in, in my opinion, he is far more dangerous to the system as a pissed off billionaire with free time than he is inside the system as the president. Boy, oh boy. Well, you got lots to talk about, no question about it. We uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you guys are busy, and we will uh, talk and continue to pay attention to this and watch it. Thank you, Alex. Take care. There you go. That is Steve Dace giving us a bit of a view. I mean, everyone up here is very smug and thinks they know how this is all going to pan out. You don't know how it's going to pan out. So just stay tuned. There is still great uncertainty in the global economy, and this means more risk to the Ontario budget just as it does for family and business budgets. That is why we are setting aside $4 billion next year and $2 billion the year after that in dedicated pandemic contingency funds to ensure resources are there when they are needed for our citizens. There you go. That is uh, Finance Minister Rob Phillips today uh, delivering an, uh, well, a pandemic budget because the government of Austeria is now a government that does not exist anymore. And so this afternoon, the Ford government laid out its plans to get us uh, through this pandemic and hopefully into recovery. And when they were elected, as you will recall, it seems like a lifetime ago, it was on a mandate to rein in spending and clean up the books. And then, of course, COVID blew all that up, and uh, we've been hemorrhaging billions ever since. So the theme of the budget is to protect, support, recover. It is pretty uh, plain and simple, but it's $187 billion, billion dollars in record spending. And apparently a path to recovery that has to be based on numerous scenarios because 
we don't know what's going to happen with this virus. Aaron Woodrick, director of the Canadian Taxpayers uh, Federation, joining me now. And I'm I'm guessing that you're going to need a, a bigger debt clot. <laughs> we certainly are. I mean, uh, federally, too. It's just spending is out of control in every jurisdiction. Uh, look, we've talked about this before, Alex. We know that they're going to have to spend some money for the unforeseen stuff. But what really troubles us, and this is as true of the Ford uh, government as it is of the Trudeau government, is they don't seem to be looking at things they could save money on. No one is arguing that they shouldn't have to spend money on on healthcare, on things related to the pandemic. But there are so many things that have nothing to do with COVID and that they were spending too much on before COVID. And none of them seem very interested in, in maybe making up some of that by cutting back elsewhere. Okay, and so Rod Phillips is a Bay Street guy. Money is his background, and uh, he was hired to get the books back in check. What is it in this this budget that you are kind of waving the red flags that you see as as not uh, necessary? Well, they didn't don't talk about any savings. Again, there are ways to save money. They gave uh, public servants a raise. Uh, I don't think that they you know at the time when people in the private sector are losing their jobs, losing their businesses, you know, for people in government to get raises. That's probably a bad look and, and totally out of touch with what's going on for everyone else. The other thing is they don't lay out any path to get back to balance. I mean, we know that it's going to take a while, but they've planned three years out, and they are out there further behind even three or four years out than they were before this hit. So it is, uh, you know, it is a sort of firefighting budget. Uh, you know, we really hope that because this was done quickly, they, they just didn't put as much into it as they could have. And, you know, we're going to certainly be pushing going forward for them to lay out a plan to eventually get us back uh, in the black. I mean, at least they have a budget. The federal government, uh, which is missing now $72 billion that can't be accounted for. I mean, they're not planning to lay out any budget. Maybe that's the reason they aren't doing it. So God help us at the federal level. But, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite, Aaron, uh, not in public polling to do any cutting right now. Apparently, um, you know, if you look at the numbers, uh, Abacus just did a poll on this. 82% of uh, Ontarians are absolutely fine with the government pouring as much money as they need now, and they're they're fine to clean it up later. And so where do you see this path to recovery? Because Phillips made it pretty clear, you know, they'll get back to some kind of recovery, but it's going to be based on several different scenarios. How do, how do you get back to recovery uh, if you don't know what the path is going to look like moving forward? Yeah, well, I think, well, you know, a lot of the polling questions, do they frame it as a false choice? It's that, you know, we should spend all, we should spend and save people's lives or we should be cruel and cut everything back. No one is saying, again, that we should not spend on certain things. What I'm saying and others are saying is there are many lower priority things that have nothing to do with the pandemic or we could save some money, um, and we need to do that if we're going to make the pain last. Because you also see from the polling that as much as people want the government to spend, they're starting to get worried about how much money we're borrowing. And I think, Alex, that's because, unlike previous deficits in debt, people are seeing this firsthand. People who've lost their jobs, they understand we're living on borrowed money, and it's starting to worry them because the bill is starting to add up. Right. I mean, look, there is no question there's political, um, you know, stuff behind this budget. Uh, they're probably going to go to the polls sooner rather than later when the polling numbers are still pretty high for the Ford government before a chance uh, for Stephen Del Duca to distance himself from his uh, government's calamitous uh, spending. You know, it's it's actually quite funny to have Steve Del Duca come out and criticize this because it's like, well, they're spending all the money that, you know, you threw away over these years on, on electricity, on, on, on health care and all these things. But I, I don't get the sense that the Ford government wants to run an election uh, being seen as the austerity government. So you get us through an election, you get reelected, and then you start to, you know, you start cleaning up the mess. 
Yeah, no government wants to run in an election on bad news, right? You want to go at the good, the good news time. And we've seen that we saw this in British Columbia where they called an early election. There's talk that Trudeau may try it in the springtime. And, you know, I hate to be cynical, but even in the middle of a pandemic, even when, you know, people are dying and people are being infected by this virus, at the end of the day, politicians are still politicians. They want power. They want to get reelected. And that seems to be driving the calculus of, you know, governments of all stripes right now across the country. What do you think of the supports for business? I mean, they expanded the tax credit on employment taxes, a reduction of hydro rates. Look, they're subsidizing businesses about 20% on on hydro. I mean, the the reality is businesses pay 20 times what households do and they can't afford it. So a lot of people say, well, big deal. I mean, that that is a big thing. But the fact is it drives me nuts that we have to subsidize something that was so cheap once upon a time. Yeah, it's frustrating. A lot of businesses, they need help or they're going to go under right now. There's no getting around that. And, you know, we're, we're a group, Alex, uh, we're not fans of what we call corporate welfare. That's, uh, that's just a handout, you know, because you're well connected to the government. This is very different. I mean, every business in Canada has been clobbered by this virus. And, uh, you know, we either help them or they go under. That's really the choice we face. The tougher conversation is going to come, you know, six months, a year from now when some of these supports start to run out. And when some, you know, businesses face a completely changed business model, and that's, that's going to be a very difficult time for a lot of business. Well, speaking of corporate welfare, then you must have been delighted to hear about GM announcing uh, $1.3 billion and not a, I was, you know, not, not a cent of it's coming out of our pocket. Yeah, so far. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm crossing my, my fingers. fingers. Well, you know, they, they did this with the Ford announcement too, Alex. They, uh, they announced the deal, and then later they announced the government uh, handout. So my, I'm crossing my fingers. I would love it if they could announce this and there was no corporate welfare, but uh, I'm skeptical, to say the least. Right, but you can't be totally surprised by the amount spent. I mean, there is so much money needed just alone in the healthcare sector. I mean, if they, if they, I mean, the cracks are so deep and, and exposed now with this pandemic. I mean, I don't know how any government turns its back on something that is in such dire need of fixing, and it's not going to be cheap. Yeah, no, no. Look, I understand, as I said, there's going to be things they need to spend money on. All we've been asking of all levels of government is find the stuff that's low priority, find the stuff that's not connected to COVID, and maybe find a way to save some money there because we are racking up a very big bill and there is no, there's not going to be a magic billionaire to swoop in and pay all of this. You hear groups like the NDP and some of the lefty think tanks are calling for these big taxes on the wealthy. Well, I can tell you, first of <laughs> all, not they're, they're, of not going, they're not going to pay it. And even if they did, it would be nowhere near enough to cover the bills that we're racking up. I know we have all of like, what, 12 in this country? Yeah, they know. It's, it's, it's a fantasy at best. And um, if we were, I mean, no one wants cuts in the public sector, even though it is so, so bloated. Um, if you did a pay freeze, let's say, how much would we save? Have you guys crunched those kinds of numbers? Yeah, it's a couple billion dollars for sure. I mean, salaries are the single biggest uh, expense for the Ontario government as for the federal government. So, you know, you you impose a pay freeze or you cut salaries by 10 or 15 percent, and you're making a significant dent in the size of that deficit. So, look, it's not about being mean. It's not because I think, uh, you know, people who work in government are bad people. It's just if we're really all in this together and some people are taking 20, 50 percent pay cuts or losing their job or losing their business, it's not unreasonable to ask people who work in government to take a small cut as well. Yeah, and, and, I, and I get the sense that that would be something that the Ford government would look at. They won't do it and waste political capital on it during any time before uh, an election. But, uh, you know, it, it would be, I think, the fairest uh, of the, um, you know, moves to just say, hey, at least a pay freeze, at least for two, three years. You're not losing your job, but we will save in these areas and you're doing your part. And that, that to me is a fair ask. 
Yeah, I think a freeze is the bare minimum. And look, I think asking people to take pay cuts rather than, than fire people, that's if that's the real choice you put to the to the government unions is look, we've only got so much money, you can decide. You you can you can lose some of your members or everyone can take a bit of a haircut and everyone can keep the job. Yeah, no, that as if uh, ever since this budget came out, the, the unions are already pulling their hair out because there's nothing in there for education. There's nothing is the 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 well is never deep enough. There's not enough money that you could give them that they will be happy. And so, you know, they're never going to be uh, pleased or happy um, to, to give up anything. All right, Aaron, we will, I guess, over the next few days, see how things fall out of this and what other little nuggets we find. But I appreciate it. I had a feeling you wouldn't like this budget. Thanks for having me, Alex. <laughs> Painful one. You can join us, of course, Monday to Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.